Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Clinton, the uh, host of Pro-Life Thinking. Unfortunately, at the beginning of this interview, Elijah's microphone on his computer kept cutting in and out. And so we eventually had to pause and have him call in and that fixed the problem and so what i've done is edited out most of the dead space at the beginning and so if it seems a little weird uh that's just the reason why so i i I cut out a lot of the the extraneous stuff at the beginning and the um and the parts in which his microphone was cutting in and out so without further ado here is the interview with elijah thompson So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we'll talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, and today I have a very special guest joining me. I have uh, That's right. Elijah. <laughs> What's that? That's right. I got a theme song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're. Don't you feel lucky? You get your own theme song. <laughs> so we're joined by Elijah. Joined by Elijah Thompson. Elijah is the host of the Fetal Position Podcast, a podcast focusing on the ethics and politics behind the abortion issue. He graduated with a bachelor's in biology. He also minored in philosophy and has been studying the issues surrounding abortion for years. He considers his pro-life conviction to be the logical outworking of an understanding of what human beings are and how we should treat them and sees it as the most reasonable position to hold for a consistent libertarian. He and his wife and their two boys live just outside of Buffalo, New York. His podcast and blog articles can be found at thefetalposition.com. Elijah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Clem. Happy to be here. You uh, appear to be uh, cutting in and out a little bit. Oh, sorry about that. Um, are you wonder if it's something on my end? I'm not sure. That's a possibility. Elijah, do we have you back? You do indeed. Can you hear me now? There we go. Yeah, that's much better. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what was going on with it, but uh, usually that setup works. But hey, at least it works this way. Yeah, yeah, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll be good uh, going this way. 
Yeah, so uh, I was telling everybody that we're basically going to be talking about your podcast, The Fetal Position, your libertarianism and how it grounds your pro-life views. And then the second hour that, that I have you here for, we're going to have a discussion about the genetic enhancement. And so once again, for the listeners, uh, if you would like to call in and ask a question of Elijah, you can call us here at 646-668-8597. So Elijah, let's start off talking about your podcast. Now, did you name your, your podcast The Fetal Position because that's the position you lie in while you record it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, no, no, it was one of those things that um, really late at night I was, you know, was working through. I had like five or six episodes in my mind of things I wanted to write um, or to, to be able to eventually record. Um, and I was, I think it was like two o'clock in the morning or something. And I woke up out of a dead sleep. Uh, well, it must not have been a dead sleep if I woke up out of it. All of a sudden I was like, <laughs> the fetal right. position. Like, this is great. What is where did that come from? Like, I have no idea where this where this inspiration came from, but it's a double entendre, of course, you know, talking about the position of the fetus in society right. and things like that. And, of course, being in the fetal position because it's one of those those topics that people don't typically like to talk about. But, yeah, it was I'm, right. I'm totally I'm totally given, uh, you know, the, a divine plan, all the credit on the name <laughs> of that one. <laughs> right. Now, um, what is it that first got you interested in talking about abortion? Well, a little while ago, um, I declared a major when I, so I was, I was going for education, going to college for education, and I started getting more interested in the sciences. Um, and it's actually, at that point is when I became a Christian, started getting interested in apologetics. Um, it's that, that pushed me into wanting to, wanting to know more about evolution, and then philosophy made me want to know more about you know, um, you know, the nature of God and metaphysics and stuff like that. And so I changed my major from biology or from education to biology, and I minored mm. in philosophy. And right at that time, I discovered uh, Josh Brahms' podcast. Uh, the Life Report podcast back when he was doing it more regularly. And now uh, basically what I did was I was working as a detailer at the time that allowed me to wear my headphones in. And uh, I listened to that probably, I think he'd made like 200 episodes, and I'm pretty sure I listened to all of them in like a three or four week span. And I hit the final episode that he was doing, and uh at that point, I was like, you know, I, I had taken in everything that he had he would been teaching with, you know, his other guests and stuff, and I had read A Case for Life, and I was just absorbing all these things, and it was right at the time that I enrolled in a bioethics class at Buff State, and um, then once I couldn't really, I mean, there, I know there are other uh, pro-life podcasts, but I wanted something in the same vein as what Josh was doing. Um, and I couldn't find that. And I'm like, Hey, well, I just digested all this information and I have the, hmm. the, uh, you know, formal qualifications to do it. Um, and you know, the other, uh, other topics of bioethics interest me as well. So, Hey, my, hmm. I, why the, why the heck wouldn't I start a podcast? And I, I had a, a podcast with my brother-in-law at the time, um, that ended up uh, kind of fizzling out after about five episodes, hmm. but so I, I had the know-how when it comes to podcasting. I had the desire and I had the experience and the knowledge base to be able to say that, say confidently that not that I know every answer, but that I'm able to start the podcast to talk about the same issue. And what ended up happening with uh, the the politics is I was kind of trying to avoid it, um, but my audience seemed to want to know more about where I stood on the various topics of you know, uh, Hillary Clinton on, on her stance on abortion and Gary Johnson and especially the presidential race. And then I looked at my, my, um, my website 
and the uh, the stats on which which podcast episodes and which blog posts did the best. And mm. it was like far and above anything that had to do with specifically with politics and abortion. They got like five or six times the downloads. And I'm like, all right, I'll give what, I'll give the people what they want. And so it ended up basically being um, a philosophy and science heavy, politics heavy podcast on abortion from um, now is from the libertarian perspective. I, I have been kind of trying to dial back on that, but it doesn't really work all that often because – so much of it is so intertwined, and I mm. think that the libertarian position has something unique to offer on that. So that's essentially the okay. backstory about the podcast itself. Okay, so basically your desire to do a podcast was basically kind of a natural outpouring of your desire to want to talk about the abortion issue. Yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, most definitely. Okay. Yeah, so then – so you have talked about other issues on the fetal position, not just abortion. That's what you kind of where you, you focus on, but you've, you have talked about other bioethical issues. In fact, that's kind of one of the things that, that inspired uh, this particular interview, or at least a portion of it, is you, you talked about genetic enhancement on your, on your fifth episode, which was your, your first episode deviating from the, from the talk about abortion. And yeah, so there are some things that, that I, I could tell that I disagreed with you on. And so I wanted you to have you on, not just to promote your podcast, but also to kind of have a back and forth with you about uh, genetic enhancement. Yeah, and so, that's cool yeah. because um, not only do I appreciate the the help and the promotion of the podcast, but um, as I mentioned in one of in whichever show, it was either the show that I recorded, episode five or episode six, I covered it, kind of like the comments in response, is this is one of those positions that I hold to tentatively, mm. and I don't really feel all that comfortable with it. Um, the idea that we should be legally and morally allowed to genetically enhance our children as long as it's safe, um, mm. just from a from an emotional perspective, I don't really, I don't like that conclusion. However, um, when I do look at what I think is the best evidence, the best argument, it comes on that side. And so, I, I'm one of those I'm one of those weird people that would say that I'm down with genetic enhancement, even though I don't like the idea. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, even though we might risk having um, like the the Incredible Hulk walking around, um, if that happens, <laughs> it'd be perfect. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So okay. So yeah, we'll get to that here in just um, a few minutes. Where else can they find your Fetal Position podcast? Um, we, you mentioned thefetalposition.com, and you can also find it on iTunes, right? Yes, iTunes and Google Play. Yeah, I didn't really feel like okay. paying the extra money for like uh, what's that other one. Uh, any, anything else that wasn't basically free. <laughs> I didn't want to oh, spend well, the extra money for storage space. Yeah, um, no worries. SoundCloud. I, mean, no I, didn't, I didn't want to put it on SoundCloud. Oh, okay. Yeah, no worries. I mean, iTunes is probably the, the biggest podcast provider anyway, and it's free, so might as well. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what are some future plans you have for your fetal position podcast? Um, well, I have at least two what I consider series in mind. Um, the first one that I've kind of been working towards for a little while is I wanted to get people, because of the, the politics angle um, of the show itself, I've been wanting to get people from different political persuasions to come on and talk about how that, that particular political persuasion has convinced them to be pro-life. Um, and I, I like the idea of having different people talking about different things from their perspective. So the same thing from their perspective. Um, mm. And that would allow me to essentially not have to do as much work. <laughs> One, you know, well, just right. find like some guy who calls himself a socialist and say, hey, you know, you want to come on my show and talk about why socialism 
would would uh, lead to a pro-life position. Same thing with, you know, just basic a progressive pro-lifer, a, cons- a conservative pro-lifer, which, you know, I tend to agree with mostly what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to have somebody on from the uh, the pro-life libertarians Facebook page, and then maybe, I don't know, but, you know, any, any of those little, like, random parties, like the Green Party or something like that. But um, that's one of the plans. And then I have a couple of, you know, I usually pay attention to politics and news, stuff like that, to make sure that I am, um, you know, giving the audience what they want when it comes to politics. And then eventually I want to do some kind of like lengthy book studies. I've been thinking about doing um, uh, Boonin's book, In Defense of Abortion, and seeing how how, how we can go through that, (laughs) uh, figure out how to respond to that. That'll take a while to do that, but I know that that's one of the more... Uh, philosophically robust books, and I want to go through that and kind of talk, you know, as, mm-hmm. as we go through the book, figure out how to respond best to those arguments. Right. Uh, yeah, Boone's book is hands down the best defense of abortion that you can find in print. Um, obviously, as a pro-life person, I would say uh, his arguments don't work, and uh, I, I think that sure. that there's good reason to uh, to suppose that his arguments don't work, and some of you know thinkers in the pro-life field have responded to his arguments, like Frank Beckwith and Chris Kayser. But it, even the books that are being written by abortion choice supporters now, such as a recent one by Willie Parker, uh, are just really, really terrible books and do the abortion choice movement more harm than good by telling people who agree with them that pro-life people are, are stupid and they're evil – Whereas that's not going to prepare an abortion choice person to adequately understand a pro-life person's arguments and to take their arguments seriously. It's just not going to prepare them to have those discussions. So I think Boone's book is, is definitely the best one that an abortion choice supporter can, can read. Right, exactly. I think given that he presents one of the more stronger arguments in pretty much every category, his book is, seg- is segmented into so many different categories that I'm just like, hey, this will be good right. podcast episode fodder for the next year and a half. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's it's very convenient in, in chopping it up into sections that you can cover on your podcast. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Boone, and I appreciate that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what would you, uh, in your view, then, what is the strongest pro-life argument? Well, so recently on my show, I've had I had Josh Brom come on, and he talked about the uh, I forget the, the equal rights argument, something like that where he says yeah. that when he goes out into a crowd of a crowd of people and he looks at every single person that's out there and he knows with beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, it'd be very difficult for him to be convinced otherwise um, that every single person out there has the right to life. And he looks at him and says, you know, they all have different qualities. They all, you know, different IQ levels, different ages, different levels of sentience, things like that, you know, depending on if someone's asleep in the corner versus just had a monster, um, different levels of, <laughs> pretty much anything that, you know, the typical pro-choicer will say would ground personhood. And he, what he says is they all have the inherent right to life. I, you know, we don't have the right to kill these people. Um, and he asks, what, what is the, the thing that grounds that right to life in all these people? If they all differ on so many different things, what is it? Mm-hmm. And then his answer is something like humanness. Um, and it's not supposed to be biological humanness because it's possible that there's aliens out there that would be persons. Um, right. But it would be something like humanness where I believe we, we, we had this kind of like back and forth on the show where we talked about the philosophy of personhood. And it was a cool discussion, so I really enjoyed it. Uh, but he yeah. essentially said it was something along the lines of um, the ability to think and act morally. And I, I, I'm totally on board with that. 
Um, whether or not, you know, things change, how I think about it more often, I'm not entirely sure. But I like the general idea that if you look at a crowd of people and you think, what makes all of them have the right to life? And it'd be something that what, no matter what thing you point at, the unborn would have that too. Maybe not, they're not actively doing that at the moment, but they're the kind of entity that does that. Does that. Um, so I actually used that a couple of times, and Josh was saying that so many of his people that he's talked to have um, changed their mind on that, and I haven't had that same experience, but I have had that argument more often ignored than anything else. <laughs> So, I mean, well, I guess it right. might be something in the in the right direction if they're just deliberately yeah. just ignoring it. Right. And then what do you feel is the most compelling uh, abortion choice argument or argument for abortion? And for the benefit of my least listeners, when I say a compelling argument, I don't necessarily mean it's persuasive or sound, but just one that, that addresses the question, kind of argues for the proposition why abortion should be legal or why it's moral, and it doesn't go off into some off-topic, uh, you know, fallacious appeal to the, the uh, evilness of pro-life people or some situation or, or something like that. So, uh, so Elijah, what, what would you feel then is the most compelling argument in support of abortion rights? I kind of flop back and forth between bodily autonomy and uh, personhood because mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a lot of – one of the reasons that they're so compelling is because there's small – snippets of like what people kind of almost appeal to intuition on this where it's like you know it's my body my choice are you saying you want to control my body that's an argument for bodily autonomy and in order to be able to address that properly you have to kind of step back from the rhetorical responses and actually engage the issue of bodily autonomy and you it takes a long time to do that and it's much easier to say my body my choice than it is to actually dissect what that means and at the right. same time, on the other end, with the personhood thing, people will typically like take a picture of like a you know a two week old um, ch- human child, human uh, you know unborn child, and say, "Does this look like a person to you?" And a lot of times, what they'll do is they'll flop back and forth between mm-hmm. um, per- human person and human being, biological human being. And I think the de- with someone does not understand or does, is not trained enough to think in terms of personhood and biological humanity, what happens is it gets lost in the details. And I think the strength of those arguments comes in not only just that they're, that they're relatively strong because of you know, how long it takes to, to, to take them apart, but in the fact that a lot of times people are more persuaded by the rhetoric without fully understanding the implications of the views. So to, to answer your question directly, the bodily autonomy and the personhood, I think bodily autonomy would probably be a little bit stronger because of how long it takes to dismantle. Um, mm. Cause the personhood one would you could respond with the argument that I just talked about earlier, the equal rights argument. Um, right. But those, those are both together usually like the the two stronger ones. There's, there's a lot of really bad okay. ones. And uh, Nicole, my co-host, and I just went through uh, the top ten worst pro-choice arguments and actually the top ten worst pro-life arguments in our podcast. So that was mm. pretty fun. There's a lot of bad ones all over the place, but those are the two that right. are the strongest. And if you could recommend one episode of your podcast to our, to our listeners to really get a feel for what the uh, the fetal position is about, what episode would you recommend? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would probably have to suggest the one with Josh, um, What Makes a Person a Person, episode number 30. Um, Hmm. We don't go into politics on that one, though. So if they're looking for something like, you know, the politics of 
of uh, of the abortion issue. I don't talk a ton about that one that in that episode. The one that I would probably suggest when it comes to um, the politics side of things. I didn't ask for two, but I'm going to give you two anyway. Um, would <laughs> be right. episode number 24, which is talking about uh, overseas abortion, overseas abortion funding, and Trump's uh, Supreme Court pick. Because I go, okay. I go heavy into politics on that one. You really get a, a feel for where I, where I'm coming from. Okay. Yeah, I actually have a question for you regarding episode 24, but we'll uh, get get there in just a couple minutes here. So let's go ahead and switch gears then. Uh, we'll we'll come back and we'll we'll reiterate uh, at the end of the program where they can find the fetal position. But let's go ahead and talk about your libertarianism. Now, unfortunately, I don't yeah. have uh, I don't have transition music. Uh, one of these days, I may I may incorporate some, but for now, you know, I just switch gears uh, organically through conversation. I, I know that you use uh, transition music on your on your podcast, so. <laughs> That's all post production. I just say I'm gonna hit the music oh, okay. and then I pretend to hit the music and then I hit pause. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right on. It's a benefit okay. of not doing it live. Right. All right. So my first question then regarding libertarianism is how would you define libertarianism and what sets it apart from other political viewpoints? Yeah, so libertarianism I, I would it's hard to define it because of the number of people that in within a libertarian community that would yell at you if you try to define it in any particular way because you know right. that means you're not a real libertarian. That's just one of those things that we do in the libertarian community is make enemies out of other libertarians. But what I like to think of as libertarianism is the logical outworking of what's called the non-aggression principle. Um, the non-aggression principle essentially states that unless someone is either actively aggressing against you or a threat to aggression uh, or to threat to aggress against you, you do not have the right to aggress against anyone else. And so aggression could be basically a violation of your natural rights, things like uh, your right to life, your right to property, um, things like that that would be essentially if coming from a constitutional perspective, one of those things that's guaranteed by the Constitution, um, things right. that don't require you to do anything except to just leave me alone. Um, and so libertarianism, would, is, I think, is the logical outworking of that. Um, and the way that it sets it, sets it apart from other political viewpoints is from the libertarian's perspective, everyone else has in one way or another justified aggression. And what, the, what we'll typically say is we'll say that the government – itself is an act of, an aggre of aggression in that they are um, they have a monopoly on coercion and it's not voluntary I know you can leave is one of those arguments that if you don't like it you can leave but we don't think that that's a, we, we want to change it from the inside we want to make it so that the government is here to, to, to protect our natural rights and that's it it can't do anything but that um, and so a lot of times people will say that libertarianism is socially uh, liberal and politically conservative or economically conservative. Um, but I think that misses the point um, mostly on the social end of things because typically, I don't know what your audience, how many people in your audience would be consider themselves left wing, but typically in that the left wing side of the politics politics discussion is uh, they still want to use the government to force people to accept or at least what they consider tolerate certain things. And they, it's like, uh, that's one of the reasons that Gary Johnson was considered to be a left-leaning libertarian is that he wanted to use the government to uh, force people to bake – force Jews to bake cakes for Nazis. And <laughs> we, in the libertarian community, we called him uh, Gary Nazi Cakes Johnson. Because we none of us agreed with that, except he, right. he was one of those. You know, you, we've heard. Oh, you've heard of Gary Johnson, but you know, 
voted him in and he didn't do anything good for us. Um, right. So on, on that, we typically libertarians are not for forcing the government, forcing, using the government to force anyone to do anything. The government exists hmm. for one purpose and one purpose only, and it's to protect our natural rights. It's not going to force you to do anything. Um, usually when it comes to the, the economics end of things, we are rampant capitalists, free market all the way, free market in things um, that people, people typically think of, like you know, TVs and cell phones, but we're also free right. market in, in things like healthcare um, and other things that people typically are like, well, no, I don't think the free market can handle that. And we're just like, it handles everything else. So let's just let it <laughs> yeah. handle that. So that's where we agree with most conservatives. Um, mm. I don't know. Conserv- conservatism generally seems to be a- moving a little bit left on certain things. I mean, I'm not. I'm just noticing a trend in some things, <laughs> but um, yeah, there it, are... it depends on uh, which quote conservative end quote you ask, because you know right, you have yeah. people on what they consider now the alt right, and certain yeah. people on the alt right are in favor of abortion rights and other things, and so yeah, and in fact our our election last year was was the most heavily left leaning election we've I think we've had in a, in a long time. Uh, oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, because Gary Johnson was a left leaning libertarian, uh, Trump was a left leaning Republican, and then of course you had Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton, who's you know the left leaning lefty. So. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so that was that was a, kind of a, a bizarre uh, election that we had. Yeah. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, so then how does your libertarianism then inform your pro-life views? So if you take the, um, the non-aggression principle and apply it, um, essentially what it means is that you do not have the right to aggress upon someone else. And to put simply, if the unborn is a person, and the unborn is in fact a person, we can prove that. Well, not pr- you, can, you can give very strong arguments for it. Um, <laughs> right. The, if the unborn is a person, then you do not have the right to aggress against the unborn, and that's just the nature of the non-aggression principle. Because if, if if there's anything that should be not allowed, it would be killing, and right. killing you unjustifiably. So. Yeah. So then, how would you respond to a libertarian who says that it's actually the embryo or fetus that violates the non-aggression principle? So abortion can be justified by a libertarian on those grounds. Yeah, so that that's one of the, actually one of the more popular that in a combination of property rights, which is essentially bodily rights. Um, but right. the the idea that a an uh, uh, an entity that did not make a choice is violating your rights, it seems just patently absurd to me. Um, I haven't right. had an, a deep conversation with a lot of libertarians because they usually go to the bodily autonomy uh, portion of things. But I believe it was uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson who talked about a little little floating uh, people that came into her window. Yeah, the, the people seeds, <laughs> and, right. Yeah, exactly, people seeds. And it seems very strange to me that the only way to remove the people seeds is to kill them. I mean, you could just <laughs> remove, but unfortunately with, with, um, with abortion, when it comes to this, you know, the violating of the rights thing, violating, mm. uh, violating someone's rights um, would only be punishable by death essentially is if you're doing it to, from my perspective is if you're doing it uh, on purpose and you, it's a, it's a visible or a, a viable threat to your, um, to your, to your life or whatever. But in the case of abortion, the vast majority of them are I mean, literally no unborn child chooses to exist. None of us, right. none of us were like, Hmm, maybe I should exist. We just, none of us thought that it was a direct right. result of our parents choosing 
either to have a child or to engage in behavior that everyone knows makes a child. Um, and so I think that's one of the arguments that, is, that goes into does, does sex consent to pregnancy? And that's actually what we talked about when you came on my show. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as anyone who's who studied uh, first year first year logic knows, uh, you can't create yourself because you would have to precede your own existence. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so on one of your previous podcasts, then episode twenty seven, the one you mentioned earlier, the overseas abortion funding, uh, you mentioned that you would like to see Roe v. Wade overturned, but no pro life alternative replacing it because you would like to see it returned to the states because of your libertarian views. Now, uh, on right. the surface, I, I'm a constitutional conservative. So on the surface, I agree with you. I think that anything not explicitly spelled out in the Constitution is up to the states to decide. I I agree with you there. Uh, But the way that I see it, though, is that if we're going to say we should leave abortion rights up to the states, and of course uh, you make it quite clear that you you don't believe states have any right to make it legal, uh, but it's still a states' rights kind of thing. The way that I see it, though, is that that's that's kind of like saying that we should allow rape and murder to be states' issues. That you know the, the government has no business making laws against that because it should be up to the states to decide. And so, if abortion really is the taking of an innocent human life, then shouldn't we put in place a human life amendment stating that human life begins at fertilization, like we did to establish that black people and women have the right to vote. Yeah, and I think I have sympathies towards the view that the federal government should, in fact, say that that you know having it be a part of the Constitution, saying something like that the that the life that the unborn has begins at conception, and that therefore it should not be um, should not be you know permitted to take that life. However, the Constitution, like you were just saying, anything that's not explicitly given to the uh, this the federal government is still left up to the states. I was look before the show. I was looking up uh, the complexities of murder laws and whether or not those would be justifiably just left up to the states. And unfortunately, it's super complicated right now because there is right. a principle called du- dual sovereignty. That's a part of the federalism idea. That so it, depending on the severe, severity of the crime. The federal government does, in fact, have the opportunity to go in and out of the states and, you know, pursue certain suspects. Um, but I'm under the impression that the the best way that we can do um, so, not only for the the pro life perspective, but also from a from a libertarian perspective, is that decentralizing things is the best way to do it. Um, and the reason I want to decentralize is because the closer that you are to your representatives, your politicians, the more likely you are to represent change or more, more likely you are to um, usher in change. And so the idea that we can – that we would replace a – what I consider to be an unconstitutional amendment, which is the – or unconstitutional federal uh, uh, precedent in Roe versus Wade and replace it with another – what I would consider to be an unconstitutional federal precedent, I don't think that doing that is ultimately good because at the end of the day, we can just – the next time it comes around, we'll just impose another federal precedent on it. I'm under the impression that if we return it to the states, then more people will have the opportunity to impact their um, their local envi- local area, local environment, local state elections to be – um, more constitutionally sound, have it be up to the states to decide certain things. And with the murder thing, I'm down with murder being uh, a state's only issue um, 
because it's not explicitly laid out in the Constitution, it gets complicated when it's like when a one murderer goes from New, like New York State and crosses over in like Pennsylvania or whatever. So you know, I'm not a murder expert. I'm, I don't have, I don't have all the the you know the the understanding of that kind of stuff. But I think when we look at it constitutionally um, and from a pragmatic perspective too, with the the um, decentralization of power, I think the best way to have this issue. Um, ultimately go in a pro-life direction is not to replace an unconstitutional precedent with another unconstitutional precedent, simply because it's not um, the role of the federal government to weigh in on those things. Um, And my goal would be that everybody would be more focused on their state issues rather than a federal issue because federal government would have so few powers that it wouldn't really even be able to do anything at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I can kind of see where you're coming from. You know, the, the fear that I have is that uh, if we leave it up to just the states, that states are not going to fall in line. In fact, just recently we had a state, I, I'm blanking on which one it was. I want to say it was Maine, but it might have been a, another state, which recently just passed a law saying that if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, abortion will continue to be legal on the, or I don't know if on demand or, or what, what the laws are in that state, but basically if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, abortion will continue to be legal, you know, up, up until whenever is on, is on their books. And so my concern is that if we do leave it up to the states, not every state is going to restrict it. And it seems like just like we do with murder, that we do have constitutional precedent to make abortion illegal on a national level because the Fifth Amendment states that no person shall be deprived of of life without due process of law. And so it seems like no state would have the right to allow abortion, which does take a human life without due process of law. Sure. And actually, if you look at the way that the Constitution is set up right now, technically – um, each state doesn't have to listen to the, the Roe versus Wade ruling at all. It's a process mm. known as nullification. Um, and so yeah. I would imagine something, something like Texas could probably, would probably have the gall to do it, but they could just say, you know what, I don't care about your opinion, Supreme Court, because that's all it is from the state's perspective. We are going to outlaw abortion. Um, and so I, from the way, that, the way that it's working right now is most states are just kind of like, well, I want to get reelected. You know, not, the states aren't saying that, but the politicians in well, the states are saying right. that. I want to get reelected, and we want federal funding. So I'm I'm under the impression right now. So if we if we took let's say Roe versus Wade is the, the law of the land, which it is, um, and Doe versus Bolton and those things. But if we if we had a politician that actually had the cojones to do what their uh, representatives wanted, then we would probably have a fair number of the conservative leaning states enact this nullification thing mm. and they should just make abortion illegal. And when then at the other end of the spectrum is if there was a, a Supreme Court opinion that said that abortion should be illegal all the way across the United States, then what the government, what the individual governments of the states could do is just say, well, I don't care about that. I'm just going to nullify that law and then abortion is going to be legal here. So the way that there's it's much more of like a social pressure and if I'm being perfectly pragmatic, I am I'm willing to if if I had the choice of uh, relying on the, the the states to all pass their laws or uh, let's pass a pro-life Roe versus Wade, I would be so tempted to pass a pro-life Roe versus Wade. Primarily, well, I have two I have two motivations. I'd had one motivation would be to 
again, sort of like what Trump is doing recently with the Paris climate deal, I'd be willing to see if the progressives would be more in favor of states' rights because that's a constitutional principle. But at the same time, like, you know, passing a pro-life Roe versus Wade would be very appealing to me given that the, the power of the federal government. So if in my libertarian utopia, the federal government would be so small that they would not be able to deprive the states of any funding because they wouldn't have any funds to give the states. And that, I think, is the major um, major hurdle that we have right now in this nullification thing is the fact that the states can – uh, they can technically nullify any federal law that they want, but they they don't do it because of the um, the funding that they get from the federal government. So, right. because of that whole social issue, I guess I would I'm yeah, it's tempting to sacrifice my 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 pure libertarian principles for a more <laughs> right. like a, a, a more conservative kind of dance. The federal government exists to protect life, and I get that. And there's, so there should be a law to protect life. So I'm. It's one of those things I'm conflicted on constantly because mm-hmm. I'm like arguing with myself. So I totally <laughs> right, get right. that perspective. But if yeah. I always look towards my libertarian utopia where the federal government basically does nothing. <laughs> right. I, I'm definitely with you. I, I think the smaller the government we have, the better. Uh, we just might differ on, on what sorts of things we believe the government has a right to restrict. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pr- pretty much there with you in that, you know, the, the bigger the government is, the less um, the less freedom you have. And so that's just kind of the, the sure. long and short of yep. it. In the way, so my libertarianism did grow out of a conservative roots. So mm-hmm. I like I, I've I've always kind of been a conservative at heart, and then when I try to apply what I think to be the, like the non non aggression principle, it kind of works out to be a libertarian. So I have an ideal, but I also have a pragmatic step in the right direction. Um, yeah. And if the step if the step in the right direction is to replace Roe versus Wade with a um, a pro life. Uh, essentially a pro-life Supreme Court ruling, Supreme Court or uh, pro-life Roe versus Wade or something, then I would probably be on board with that um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but it wouldn't be grounded ultimately in the my libertarian utopian, utopian ideal. It would be a step in that direction, I think. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we really saw this um, kind of come to pass a little while ago after these um, – after, when President Obama was still in office, and these videos came out from the Center for Medical Progress showing that mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood actually does profit off of the selling of fetal parts. And uh, you, know, you mentioned Josh Brom earlier. Uh, he wrote a, a very persuasive article on his blog for Equal Rights Institute as to how we know that they are actually profiting from fetal parts and not just recouping the, the money that they use to ship it. So, uh, if, if, I have any, so if, if any of my listeners are interested in more information on that, uh, seek out the Equal Rights Institute uh, article on that. But we really saw it because after those videos came to light, we, we saw that there were several states that were starting to say, you know what, uh, Planned Parenthood is engaging in illegal activity. We no longer feel that we can, can fund them. And so they started cutting off the funding to Planned Parenthood. And in response to that, President Obama started uh, cutting off the Medicaid money that usually gets funneled from the federal government to the states. That was really right, big exactly. pressure on yeah, that was really big pressure on the states then to reinstitute the funding for Planned Parenthood because they didn't want to lose the the funding for their uh, for their government medical program. Mm-hmm. And that's why the whole thing gets down to eventually someone's going to be removing funds from somebody in order to get them to do what they want. And I just think we need some right. politicians just to stand up and say, "No, we're not going to, you know, 
have you blackmail us like this? We're going to stand up for the principles and the things that we that our that our constituency wants in our state, and we're going to do that. We don't care if you don't give us any funding. Um, And what I would really love is long term would be that the states themselves control the collection of the the taxes to be given to the federal government instead of them just taken right out of our taxes or out of our uh, our paychecks, so that the states at the end of the day can say, hey, I have all these taxes. That would go to you if you would stop being jerks. And if mm. all the states did that, right. then they could consent it. Because the federal government only exists because we say that it should. Mm. If we stopped listening to them, they would. The federal government would just basically dissolve. Yeah, at least mm. that's what I would hope. Um, well, but yeah, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of, of what that would look like. Like, how would the the common citizen stop listening to the government, and that and that would be a detriment to the government? Because it because I, I kind of have I, I guess. Uh, I haven't really thought much about this particular aspect. I, I have in my mind like a picture of people refusing to do what the government wants and the government like putting them in jail. Uh, would, do yeah. you have something different in mind? or is that? So are you talking about stopping listening to the federal government? Yeah, or were you talking about the state government in that, in that aspect? So I was talking about uh, basically the states having a system of government in place to make it so that if, they, if they, an individual person within the state – disobeys a federal ruling, like in nullification, okay. then the yeah. state stands up to the federal government. I think this happened in Texas relatively recently. I don't have an exact example, but they, there was something that was happening, and someone violated a nullified rule. The, the, the Supreme Court passed something, and then they said that it was okay for them to do it in Texas. And they, mm. What happened was the federal government tried to send their agents to this town to arrest this guy, and the and the sheriff said, "If you come into my town, I will put you in jail." Hmm. And it they didn't they didn't do it. They didn't they didn't come in. <laughs> it was just a little okay. little thing. Actually, did their job and stopped hmm. being you know whipping boys for the federal government and yeah. stopped pretending that they needed all the funding. Right. Then it would just it, everything I think would work out in the long run. <laughs> Right. Okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying now. I, I uh, must must have uh, missed that uh, that part of it. Um, yeah. yeah. So ba- basically, if the federal government were to dissolve, then that would basically make each state a sovereign entity unto itself, uh, without having the federal what, government kind of lording over it. Which is exactly what the, the founders of the of the this country wanted. I mean, the mm-hmm. federal government was basically just there to be an entity that combined all of the states together. I mean, there's, there was really, and maybe some national security, I think, is what, what the original idea was. But even then, it was the states organized their own military, and then mm. they combined their forces together to defend the entire country. It wasn't that we had this national force that was completely separate from the states themselves. It's just yeah. everything. The federal government's gotten so stinking big. Yeah, and that's also why the Second Amendment is worded as it is, right? That um, yeah, that yeah, guns exactly. are necessary because the the people were basically the, the militia. Which, of course, yeah. modern day modern day people who oppose the Second Amendment are claiming that that the Second Amendment was only intended for the militia and not for the for yeah. a common person to own a firearm, basically. And I guess that means that the freedom of speech was only meant to be used like a quill, right? A quill and some well, some parchment paper. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
so so I get that, and we we also kind of see it on on a little smaller level too, because uh, the mayor of San Francisco recently, actually, the mayor the mayor of San Francisco, I, I'm not sure, I, I don't live in San Francisco, I live in the Central Valley, uh, but I'm not sure how long he's been mayor. But I remember like when we first voted on keeping marriage between a man and a woman, California voted to keep the definition of marriage between a man and a woman, and the mayor struck it down like two or three times after we voted oh. on it. So I I yeah, don't I know if it's that. yeah, so I don't know if it's the same mayor or not. Uh, but but the mayor of San Francisco recently uh, basically turned San Francisco into a sanctuary city to where any yep. uh, any refugee will never be deported if they come to San Francisco and seek sanctuary. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, I don't know if it's the same mayor, but if it is like, you know, we may disagree with him, but he, he's got. Well, I don't I, I don't know if he, if he necessarily has cojones or it's just. Because California is a very, very, very left-leaning state, so it might just be yeah. like he he knows that he's not going to get in trouble for for doing it because he's basically uh, in line with with the views of the governor and our our state uh, legislature as well. So right. who knows? Yeah. yeah, I don't know that that whole sanctuary city thing is a is a rat's nest in and of itself too. Yeah, and um, and then uh, and then some some person came came forward. I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, this isn't something I looked up before the interview today, but then someone came forward, a, a pro-life person came forward and said, you know what, we ought to just turn our, our regular cities into sanctuary cities for the unborn. And I thought, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. We should probably think about doing that. I like that. I like that yeah. idea. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything you want to add regarding your libertarianism real quick before we, we switch gears and talk about genetic enhancement? I don't think anything in particular, um, but if the people wanted to know more about this, it kind of it just permeates all of my episodes of the of the fetal position. So um, if they if and there's probably some things that we haven't talked about, um, and they'll be able to find that there was so there was one real quick actually one thing that I could bring up. Um, sure. There was that episode 29 that we talked that I talked about earlier um, called Tommy Lauren Abortion of the Constitution, and in that I actually. Uh, read from Ron Paul's book, Liberty Defined, and I read from uh, Chris Ann Hall's website for an article called The Inalienable Right to Life. Mm. And they give what would be the, uh, essentially Ron Paul gives like the libertarian view and uh, Chris Ann Hall gives what would almost be like a constitutional anarchist view <laughs> because mm. it's basically, it's very, it's very interesting. I don't want really, to, I don't, I don't have the, knowledge base of yeah. her constitutional understanding to be able to to display it here um but if yeah. your if your audience is interested it's episode 29 and i think she does a great job okay yeah i i, I listened to episode 29 i don't remember specifically that because i, I must have been like zoning out because I, I usually listen while i'm driving so i'm trying to pay attention to the road but a constitutional anarchist kind of sounds like a contradiction in terms yeah, well, so what I mean by anarchist is um, yeah. in, in this particular instance, she doesn't think the government should do anything at all. It's like mm. if she grounds it in, I think, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment and says that if you take these Ninth and the Tenth Amendment seriously, which would make her not an anarchist because the Constitution mm. well, is a government document. Um, right, yeah. And she – yeah, so what I mean is she takes those principles and then basically says that – the government shouldn't have a single thing to say about this because we have an inalienable – she's very passionate – inalienable right to life, inalienable. She goes nuts on her podcast all the time, um, and so she basically is like if any single person tries to say that anyone is allowed to rip the life away from anyone else, they are not allowed to do that, and it is grounded in the Constitution and our natural rights, and so um, 
she goes even further than Ron Paul did in her defense of the pro-life perspective from a constitutional perspective. Mm. Um, he basically said that he doesn't think that the that there should be a um, uh, Roe versus Wade, a pro-life Roe versus Wade, um, and that's the that's the full extent that he goes to. And then mm. Chris Ann Hall takes it like two steps further. Okay, so so then your position would line up more with with Ron Paul's that there shouldn't be a pro-life equivalent to Roe v. Wade or like a, a constitutional amendment for life uh, for life beginning at fertilization or something like that. That we should just keep it as a states' rights kind of thing. That's that's kind of Ron Paul's position also. Yeah, so that's the position that he laid out in Liberty Defined. Um, whether or not he's changed that, I don't. I mean, he's Ron Paul. I don't think he would have. I think he he would have figured out where he stood on that by now. Um, but I, actually, when yeah, I when I recorded the episode, yeah, exactly. Um, when I recorded the episode, I I had agreed largely with Ron Paul, and then when I at the end of it, I was like, but dang it, I don't actually know how to respond to Chris Ann Hall here. So. Mm. Maybe they're just going to have to disagree, and I'm going to have some cognitive dissonance between my two of my favorite libertarians. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, at least they're they're both uh, they're both pro life, so <laughs> you have that. Yeah, and that's another thing about the libertarian community. Like we have, like, okay, so Chris Ann Hall and Ron Paul, and then we have a whole bunch of the other like major libertarians, like Rand Paul. I know a lot of people wouldn't consider him a libertarian, but I think that he's much more libertarian leaning than than anything else. Um, and then we have. Bob Murphy and Tom Woods and Jason Stapleton and a bunch of other uh, heavy-hitting libertarian thinkers who are pro-life. There's, I think, um, a couple of uh, – who was it? Mises or Rothbard, one of the, one of like the founding thinkers of, of libertarianism that made some kind of really strange property rights argument from libertarianism um, that eventually got torn apart, I think, by Tom Woods. But anyway, so no. I, would, I would grant – I would say that the, the majority, at least just slightly over 50% of libertarians right now, I think, are pro-life, even though the political stance and libertarian, libertarian political party is, has a pro-choice perspective on it. I, I would love to see how that's going to change over the next five to ten years to see mm. if that actually modifies it at all. But yeah. Okay, and actually, um, I, I want to make a quick correction. I just I was just thinking about it, and I realized I misspoke earlier. The mayor of San Francisco can't strike down uh, a state law. Uh, the governor struck down the law twice because he considered it to be unconstitutional. What the mayor did is he continued to issue marriage licenses to homosexual couples despite the fact that California passed those laws. So yeah, I just want to make uh-huh. a quick uh, want to make a quick correction on that because uh, I was just thinking, no, that, yeah. that, that that's not that's not accurate. Okay, so now that that's out of the way, we'll go ahead now and we'll <laughs> move over to the discussion on genetic enhancement. Uh, once again, if you'd like to call in and you have questions, the number is six four six 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 eight eight five nine seven. On your podcast, then it was um, oh what number? Oh yeah, it was uh, number five, five right? Um, yeah, so you talked about how you believe that uh, genetic enhancement, as long as it's done safely, is permissible. Did you want to kind of uh, just kind of briefly summarize your arguments? And then I'll, I'll give you mine, and then we'll kind of just have a little dialogue about it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the basic way that I approach it, I mean, the, the essay that I wrote is pretty long. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the basic way that I approach it is I say that we are, and we know this, we are a combination of genes and environment. And if someone thinks that it is okay to safely modify the 
the child's environment in a way that makes them eventually turn out um, better, you know, better in the long run, either, you know, um, like them, people will modify the, the unborn environment by giving, you know, prenatal vitamins and doing things, you know, having, you know, staying rested and things like that. Um, those are environmental modifications that would be in the best interest of the child. And then as soon as the child is born, they want to, you know, read the child books. They want to get the child in the best schools, get them in playing the best sports or getting the best tutors. Basically all parents, I think if their head is on straight, want the best thing for their kids. And so what they do is they modify the environment as much as they can to make that happen. Given that we know that the, the human person is a combination of genes and environment, and each trait is like more or less genes and environment, um, I, see virt- I see no reason, um, and this is what we're going to uh, talk about, I see no reason to think that modifying the environment is any more, any more morally problematic than modifying someone's genetics. Um, and, and I go a little bit further and I say that if it is possible for someone to genetically engineer their children um, and they choose not to, and it's possible to do it safely, and they choose not to, and because of that choice not to, they, um, the child is, you know, let's say less intelligent than his, uh, his cohort or um, in any, any of his other like, desirable characteristics, if he falls short because they chose not to, it almost seems as though they've done the child a disservice. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't know if in my essay, I go so far as to say that everyone should genetically engineer their children. Like it should be like legally mandatory because that would go against all of my libertarian principles. But I think that they are mm-hmm. at least morally obligated to take the advantage of the genetic engineering, the safe genetic engineering and give their child the best possible environment in the same way they would do it. Um, or the best possible genes in the same way that they would do it with the environment. Okay. I, I'm sorry if this is going to disappoint anybody who's listening, but I'm not like a, a Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly type. Uh, I don't bring people onto my show and just yell at them. Um, so I, I really want to keep this to be a, a friendly discussion, not like a, a debate. I'm not here to like embarrass Elijah or anything. Uh, and who knows, he may end up uh, convincing me. So this, uh, I think this discussion will be a good one. Um, okay. So then my, my basic arguments, um, against genetic enhancement, I, I have a few but, that I thought of. Just kind of preliminarily, uh, it does strike me as something that is wrong, uh, just just from like a just from like a, a natural level. Like it's, it's unnatural, but uh, I, I I haven't been able to really articulate a good reason as to why. Because for example, uh, I believe it's wrong to amputate a perfectly healthy limb if you're going to be replacing it with something that could enhance it, uh, like a robotic arm to make it stronger or something. Now, obviously, uh, someone might respond to that by saying uh, genetically enhancing a cell is not like amputating a healthy limb because you're, you're enhancing it. You're not amputating it and replacing it with something unnatural. So that uh, aspect of it I don't think works. I still kind of have an issue with it there on, on a natural level, but I, I don't have a, a way to articulate it just yet. So, so I'm not going to be able to make an argument from that position. My arguments against genetic enhancement. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I like the way you're going there because so as a reminder to to your audience, I'm I'm actually uncomfortable with this idea that we should be able to genetically engineer the the kids. I actually really like that. That's not something I've heard yet is should we 
if we have a fully functional leg that's made of a robotic leg, do we have like if we have that ability? All the arguments that I just made seem to be easily replaced. Genetic engineering just you know replace the legs, like to make them jump higher, run faster. And I don't. If you come up with a, a more robust like defense of that one, I mean I'm yeah. I'm totally down with <laughs> with modifying my position <laughs> because that at the moment it doesn't really seem to. It, it seems to be a logical outworking of the view. Hmm. Yeah. And, so and given my arguments in my paper, I'm not sure I could rebut that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cause, cause I, I think it's definitely, and I think it's easy to defend the view that it would be wrong to amputate a perfectly healthy limb and replace it with something better because, you know, we, we talk about, for example, people who have a gender reassignment surgery. Now, obviously that's a very controversial topic and I'm not intending right. to get into the, uh, the morality or immorality of it just yet, uh, or right now, or even really on this program, because, well, it, it, might, it might go into to bioethics. So maybe at one point we might, but that's not really my intention tonight or in the near future. But basically pushing aside the morality or immorality of someone believing themselves to be uh, the opposite sex or the opposite gender and then allowing them to go through with this procedure, it seems uh, on, on the surface, it seems wrong to me because, for example, if you're turning a male into a female, you're amputating a perfectly healthy body part, the male, the male member, keeping it PG here, and, and <laughs> you're, you're basically turning him into a biological female, or at least as close to a biological female as you can. And so, uh, and so that seems, and, and you know, for the longest time, it was seen as immoral in the medical field. Uh, now more and more doctors are starting to do it, but it was seen as immoral because you're having to amputate a perfectly healthy limb, even if the, the person, him or herself, uh, doesn't believe that, that he or she is supposed, to, uh, is supposed to have that male member. And so it seems that, uh, it, that, if we're going, that it's clearly wrong to amputate a limb to some natural part of you for an unnatural enhancement. So that aspect of it, I, I would say I, I could present an argument from, from natural law against that sort of thing. But if we're just talking about genetic enhancement where you go in, you, you, like, you, you find the, the cells or whatever, or you know, like the cell, well, yeah, then again, you kind of go into the, the whole morality too. Like, is it really moral? Because it's not moral. I don't think it's moral to conceive an embryo in a lab and then enhance it genetically. So if you can't create an embryo in a lab, it, it, it kind of remains. So there's a lot that, that I, I, I see now that I haven't really thought about on this. It's like, because if, if, you're, <laughs> if you're going to genetically enhance a child that's, that's conceived naturally in the womb, well, how would you do that? You'd have to like go in there to, to do it. But once it's old right, enough to be able to do that, then, uh, then it's too probably too late to to uh, enhance it genetically. So you might have to affect the the sperm and the ovum, and then uh, artificially inseminate the woman yep. in order to do that. So yep. yeah, so I'm just kind of so these are some thoughts I'm actually just now having for the first time. So uh, so I apologize uh, yeah. about about that aspect of it. So uh, so basically, just <laughs> to kind of summarize what I was just talking about, it seems obviously wrong to amputate a healthy limb and replace it. But with that argument, it doesn't seem as obviously wrong to simply enhance the individual at a genetic level so that it develops those from its genes. That, I think, will take a, a different sort of argument. Sure. So then my basic arguments against that sort of genetic enhancement um, is that the, the reason that genetic enhancement – so, yeah, okay, so you, made, you make the, uh, the distinction between genetic therapy – which is not morally problematic because in that case you're restoring a lost function to a part of the body to the way that it should function. And so I don't have any problem with genetic therapy. Uh, it's the enhancement function, 
enhancing a perfectly natural, perfectly healthy cell or, or limb or something to make it, uh, to make it unnaturally better, basically, is, is the part that I have the issue with. And so the reasons right. that I have issues with that is because it seems to me like it treats children as a means to an end rather than an end in themselves because the parents will enhance features that appeal to them rather than allowing their children to develop naturally and pursue interests that they have, the children themselves have. And it also seems like it treats children as property because now you're allowing us to do whatever with them that we want to do, regardless of how they feel about it. And especially because these uh, effects on the child will last through the child's whole lifespan. And so it seems morally problematic on the, on the natural level because you're, you're basically enhancing uh, somebody to an unnatural level, and then it seems like we're treating children as means to an end and treating children as property. And then uh, one last major issue I have with this is that, uh, well, basically, I'll, get, I'll, I'll just go ahead and stop there and, and have you respond, because I do have another point I wanted to bring up, but it's kind of in response to one of your other arguments. So uh, go ahead, because um, I kind of monopolized last, like, five or ten minutes on that. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, I, what I – so my, my – my question in response, I guess, to that um, would be, isn't that the a same type of criticism that we could levy against uh, parents changing the environment? Like, is there, obviously, the kids are not consenting to certain things. Like, like I have two kids right now, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I do certain things in their environment. Like, I'll take them to church. Um, wouldn't just as one example, I take them to church and, you know, I'll bring them to certain classes and we're thinking about putting Micah into karate classes at some point. Um, and he might not consent to those things. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's a line that you draw between, um, genetic, genetic modification versus environmental modification that somehow makes it so that it's, it's wrong. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, so that was actually the, the next point that I did want to want to talk about. For one thing, when we talk about the the natural modification, it doesn't respond to my arguments that it treats children as a means to an end and as property, because for the most part, the things that we do when we enhance a child's environment is for the child's own good. We're treating them as an end unto themselves, not as a means to sure. an end. For example, a parent who was never able to make it into the big leagues might think, you know, uh, I, I really want my kid to make it into the big leagues because that's a dream that I had. And in that case, they would be kind of living vicariously through their child if they were to genetically enhance their child to have good hand-eye coordination to be better at sports uh, like baseball. And so it would, be the, it would be in the parent's best interest, not in the child's best interest, to enhance that. And so the enhancements that we're talking about, things like, you know, adjusting their environment, uh, reading to them when they're, when they're growing up, uh, taking certain vitamins that will help them grow and, and become you know, stronger. These are all for the, the child's best interest. And the, the role of the parent is to, uh, is to not only make sure that the child becomes a productive member of society, but also to make sure that the child grows up to be a, a generally moral person. So it seems like these kinds of things are justified in that uh, we're doing it for the child's own good, not because the parents desire it. And so if we're talking about then things that aren't necessarily good for every child, but that but are meant to foster the interest of the child, uh, I, I would think personally, and as someone who has no kids, this is just my own personal view, That, but I, I was a kid and I, I did grow up with, with parents, obviously. And so, and so it seems like yeah, sorry, I, I don't mean to be flippant. I'm just, I, I was just thinking, well, so I don't have kids myself, but I went through this kind of thing when I was a kid growing up is all I meant. Sure. I, I didn't mean to be flippant on that. But basically, it seems like we should allow the, the kid to pursue a wide range of interests 
and then whichever one the child takes to is the one that we should foster as opposed to like me as a musician if i had if i end up having kids i would love my kids to play music but if i see that my kids enjoy sports more than they enjoy music i don't think I necessarily have the right to force music on my kids. I would want to foster what they have an interest in. And, and so I would put them in sports as opposed to putting them through music. Okay. So that actually, that last bit right there actually responds to what I was going to say in response to it. So like you use the example of a baseball of the, of, of someone who wanted to make it big leagues. And so like, if he had, if he had kids, he modifies them in a way that makes it so that they're really good at baseball or they're really good at, you know, they can run really fast or something like that. Um, and in that sense, you were just essentially focusing on the motivation of the parents. So it wasn't really getting down to the, the problems with enhancement versus, you know, genetic enhancement versus environmental enhancement. It would be just something that you, you don't particularly like the motivations of a parent. And I'm totally down with that. Like I, I'm, I'm 100% on board with the idea that we should foster, we should foster things that the kids enjoy. But at the same time, like, so for example, whenever, when my kids, when my three-year-old was younger and now my one-year-old, um, when when they like to do is you know they like to be like thrown up and around. Um, Micah does not currently like that anymore, so I've I've stopped doing that. But when they were younger, what I did was I held their thighs in a way that made it so that they had to hold their whole body up, and I would move their thighs and their knees back and forth to be able to strengthen their ab muscles. Um, they they enjoyed it. They had fun. Um, and so that basically gave me permission to keep doing it, but I was essentially enhancing their environment they wouldn't have gotten elsewhere. And because of that, Micah is like really fast, and Cole is he he walks earlier than Micah did. Um, mm. So I enhanced essentially I enhanced their environment in a way right. that is I, mean, I wanted that for for myself because I was like I want the kid that walks first, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I was like it also helps that they are going to be, you know, more stable, their core is going to be stronger, stuff like that. So to mm-hmm. me, if, if I were to have just enhanced something like that, thinking only of the child's interests, right? If I was like, you know, let's say that I was um, like a fat kid or something where I was like, I didn't have <laughs> enough, um, enough, you know, uh, muscle, muscle mass or something to stand up for myself, or I could never do the sports I wanted to do or whatever. And I was like, this is what I, this is what I saw in myself. And I know that having a better, let's say, um, a, a gene that would be that would be modified to make it so that they could increase their muscle mass quicker, or a more efficient use of their metabolism, um, it seems to be in the same category as me moving their legs back and forth while they're strengthening their ab muscles. Um, and so, I think now I forget exactly what you were saying earlier, but it it was about. It was about about the the uh, motivation of the parents versus the you know the the child child himself, and I think that if we're if we're talking about treating a child as an end in, in himself, I think genetic enhancement would be able to do that as long as you're thinking about the the rights and the um the, what's good for the child as a whole. So it's not necessarily that you can just say that because it's enhancement at a genetic level, therefore it's, you're doing it as an end in and of itself, other than you know, the same thing could be applied to environment stuff. Yeah, because the, the thing I'm thinking, though, is that we, we can never know uh, when, when the child's life is first starting out, we could never know what the child's interest is going to be. And so if, if a parent, for example, is 
trying to genetically modify their child to be better at sports, they, they, they have no idea if that child is even going to have an interest in sports. You know, it might be the child discovers, hey, I'm really good at this, so I like to do it. Or it might be that the child might have the, the ability for it, but might not have the interest. Like, you know, he doesn't like to, pl- you know, he doesn't like to go out on, on hot, sunny days and, and, you know, play sports or something like that. And so he would pass on the opportunity to play baseball, even though he was genetically modified to do so. And so uh, it seems like that we could just never know for sure what the child's interests are going to be. Now, if we're talking about the difference between the natural, um, the, the environmental affectations where you're, you know, moving your, your son's calf muscles to, to make them stronger versus the motivation to, to play sports or to be musically inclined or something, uh, I would think that then uh, I would probably have to revert back to a natural argument in which I, I don't yet know quite how to articulate that it's, uh, that I feel that it's, it's wrong to do so just from a natural level. I, of course, I, I could, we could go the, the religious route. And because one of the, one of the arguments you talked about in your paper is that some critics say that genetic enhancement plays God. Right. And so there, there could be that aspect of it too, that we're basically telling ourselves that we know better than God, how, um, you know, what kind of life our child should live. And so I think there's that aspect of it too. If you're religious, obviously if you're non-religious, that's not going to work, but there, there is that um, aspect of it too. And then uh, just one other point to make here is that it, it seems like, so yeah, let me throw this argument at you, a, a non-religious argument, and see what you think of this one. If we're going to genetically enhance a child unnaturally to be, for example, better, better at sports, like you're, you're, you're genetically engineering them to be faster, to have more muscle mass, uh, to have all of these things, better hand-eye coordination, all of these kinds of things, it, it places an unfair advantage of those kids over and above kids who might have a natural ability to play sports but didn't have the means in order to be genetically enhanced. Maybe uh, the child grew up with poor parents who couldn't afford uh, genetic enhancement, or maybe they grew up with parents who were very religious and didn't believe in genetic enhancement. So if you're going to genetically enhance children to be better at sports, then they're going to have an unfair, unnatural advantage over the kids who didn't have access to that same genetic engineering. All right, so there was essentially four things that I want to say in response to these things. So the first one, when okay. you were talking about um, you don't know what the kid will like, um, the, so I've been actually been studying some recent psychology um, just in my, my marketing ventures, and my, I'm you know, at the very beginning stages of writing a book about how to be more uh, convincing and persuasive and things like that. So I've been studying mm-hmm. some aspects of psychology, and um, in general – you tend to, not you personally, but us as human beings tend to like to do things that we're good at. Um, mm. And so, I, you know, I can work really hard to do something that I don't particularly, I'm not good at right now, um, but I eventually want to be better at it. And that's one thing. But generally speaking, like when I was, when I was younger, I would, um, I was never really a real big sports kid. I liked to do some sports. I played football for like two years, and then I played soccer for a year, and I did Aikido for like four months. Um, but one thing that I found that I was very good at was video games. And so when I had the opportunity to either do X, Y, or Z, I always chose video games. And what happened was I actually got into more competitive video gaming, and when I was going to school, I actually – or going to Buff State – I actually entered a Super Smash Brothers melee competition, and I got second place. And so, oh. I was, I was, I have a natural ability to be good 
as much as you can argue that you have a natural ability to play <laughs> video games, I have a right. natural ability that I don't really have to work at um, to mm. play to play games that are like Mortal Kombat or Soul Calibur or or Super Smash Brothers or something like that. Those are just the kinds mm. of games that I'm good at. Competitive yeah. fighting games. I don't know how good I am compared to the people now because I have two kids, so I haven't right. played those in yeah. a long time. But right. still, that was in my natural ability, and so mm-hmm. I know I personally know people that were that have a natural ability to be really good at running, um, and so the the thing about that is you will always like to do the things that you are more that come more easily to you, and so the idea that just because we don't know what the child is going to like to do, that therefore we should wait to do any sort of training whatsoever, would essentially negate what I was doing with Micah and Cole by strengthening their abdominal muscles. And that gets into my second point where I don't see a downside to increasing your hand-eye coordination, your musculature, your metabolism. Um, and so like, you know, if you had, let's say I want my kid to be uh, a track star and I'm like, okay, you're going to have long limbs and you're going to have the best muscles. <laughs> okay. So as a side note, you actually can't do this as easily as it's making it sound. It's very right. complicated. Genes <laughs> are, like genes are on, to be just for the le- the length of limbs is like on mm. every single chromosome, it's it's nuts. So, mm. but for the for the sake of you know hypotheticals, if I right. wanted to yeah. make my kid be a track star, and then he was like, Dad, I really don't like sports. You wasted ten thousand dollars on this genetic enhancement for nothing. What I really want to do is I want to play the guitar and the piano. His metabolism and length of of fingers and all that stuff can help him use the, help him play the piano. So, from it's the way that the genetic hand enhancement would work is it would be a little a slight advantage in certain things like height, length of limbs, stuff like that, in a way that would essentially work out to be better than most people at most things. Um, it wouldn't be just you know I'm enhancing you to do running, and if you don't like running, then I've screwed you over. It's like a I'm enhancing your ability to be essentially do whatever you want, but be more likely to be better at anything you want. And if you're better at anything you want, then you're more likely to choose whatever you'd like. So I'm actually opening the opportunity. Um, okay. And so I I don't know if you want because we can go into the playing God and the uh, the poor parents <laughs> versus religious parents unless you want to talk. I can do the response to that now, or we can talk about what I just said. You know, I, I wouldn't say let's necessarily go too much into the, into the playing God unless we've like exhausted yeah. all other uh, all other talking points. Because not that I not that I don't like that discussion because I'm a Christian myself, but uh, because right. you know I want to have as as uh, wide uh, listenership as as possible. And so this might not be an argument that would resonate with with a lot of people. So yeah, so I, I'd re- I'm really interested, in, and we can come back to your your previous points too. But I'm really interested in how you would respond to my my most recent argument, the one about giving uh, you know parent uh, children of wealthier parents, yeah, an unfair, unnatural advantage over the kids of parents who couldn't afford it or didn't believe in it. Okay. Um, so the uh, – um, well, so actually in my in my paper, I actually t- – I addressed the playing God thing for half a second, and I say that it's essentially the same argument that could be used to catch all for anything that makes us uncomfortable. Um, and I right. just – I say that you have to be more precise instead of just saying playing God. Then I'm, I'm fully down with, you know, set, you know – there are some things that we should do and some things we shouldn't do, but the idea of playing <laughs> right. God, you just got to be more specific. Um, yeah. For, for, this, so for the, this idea, for this okay. idea of technology and like playing God, I, I always quote uh, Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park that, uh, you know, your scientists were so preoccupied <laughs> yep. with whether you could, that you didn't stop for a second to think about whether or not you should. That, that's one of my yeah. all time favorite movie it's quotes. A, and I use it often. <laughs> it's a great line. Yeah. There's, I think they yeah. made that into a meme. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I believe so. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'm totally down with that, like ethical um, precautions as much as possible, uh, whether we're playing God or playing nature or whatever is, you know, kind of just semantics. Um, but, yes, definitely, yeah. definitely have ethical um, precautions in everything we do. Um, so the, um, the idea that we, if we have genetic enhancement, then we'll create some kind of inequality. I am under the impression that that is essentially an argument that could also not only be made against genetic enhancement, but could also be made against any sort of environmental enhancement. So like, let's imagine that we had, um, some wealthy parents who sent their, um, somewhat, you know, naturally a bit a natural ability child to a very expensive school and the kid learned a lot about, you know, learned Latin. So now he understands like Latin roots of certain scientific terms. So he goes to school and they have the ability to, to hire a tutor so that he can get as much tutoring as he needs. So he gets his master's degree and like, you know, in three years or something because they have the, the means to um, put him through school as intensely as possible. Um, and they also have private piano lessons and he's a track star because they have, they've built a gym in their house. So I'm just, I'm blowing this out of proportion because I don't really think that those people exist all that much, but I think it's the same basic principle is that if it is okay for parents to parent their children in a way that would result in inequalities, by manipulating the environment, I think that same the argument that you made that that there's like some kind of necessarily unfair advantage and that that is wrong. Um, I don't necessarily see that unfair advantage as being wrong. Um, well, in a, in a <laughs> that's a different kind of discussion. I don't necessarily see that as, as having inequality as being inherently immoral, um, but I also see it as the argument that you made to be potentially be used in restricting or banning any sort of um anything that would le- that would level the playing field so to speak and once it's the only way to level the playing field is to bring the top people down you can't bring the bottom people up unless of course you just give away free money and that's a huge economic problem <laughs> right now uh real quick because i i'm not entirely sure we have the same idea of genetic engineering in our minds. So why don't you go ahead and, and define okay. what you mean by genetic engineering? Uh, I just want to make sure we're the same gen- Yeah, it would just be manipulation at the genetic level that would change something about the uh, developing organism. Okay, so are we talking then about – because cause what, I'm, what I'm thinking right now is that uh, there could be a difference between, say, genetically engineering someone of, of natural, of normal human intelligence and strength and bringing them up to superhuman levels or taking someone uh, below average intelligence or strength, if you, can, uh, if you could tell that just by looking at the, at the uh, cells that are going in to make it, of uh, someone of below average intelligence or strength and bringing them up to a normal level. What, what, what kind of idea of genetic enhancement are, are, are you, you talking about here? Well, the enhancement would ha- would necessarily be the one where you're taking someone of any status and then putting them above and beyond something that they could do naturally. So, like, um, that would be, by by its nature, enhancement. And then you have the opposite one or the other one where you're taking someone and bringing them up to, like, a normal function um, yeah. would be, by almost by definition, just therapy. So, like, if you have a, a okay. low-functioning, um, you know, I don't know, 
if you can you can yeah. so so many of these things are like a, a combination of genes and environment that it's hard to say but um right. let's say you had a genetic predisposition to low IQ and low metabolism bringing mm-hmm. them up to having an average IQ and having an average intelligence um could be is i think it would be enhancement in that you are enhancing their features but i mean for the mm-hmm. sake of for the sake of um for the sake of the argument that i make in my paper yeah anything that puts someone at the norm i considered therapy um, okay. It just so, just to make that like very clear, so that I know that I'm not arguing against that particular thing necessarily, but I'm or I'm not arguing mm. that's not coming into my perspective because that's a different question as to making someone up to quote unquote normal. But I'm thinking about making yeah. them super normal if to okay. use the prefix super. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that's what I had answer. in mind. So. Okay. Yeah. So that, that was what I had in mind. Okay. So yeah. So I just want to make sure we're okay. on the same page there. Uh, okay. So. We we are in fact we already kind of make enhancement certain kinds of enhancements illegal in sports. For example, taking steroids sure. is illegal in sports. That's something that enhances um, a sports player's endurance and uh, ability to play is is the steroids. And yet, in, instead of saying okay, we will just allow every baseball player to take steroids, they actually make steroids illegal. So what would what in your right. mind then would be different between taking steroids and genetically enhancing uh, an embryo to be better in sports when they get older? Um, well, so I think it, so. It's, I don't really know a ton about sports, but so it would be. <laughs> I, think well, I don't either. So when <laughs> just two random dudes <laughs> speculating about sports. Um, right. So my my thought is that it was the the MLB's discussion that they were the ones who chose to ban the use of steroids. But I think what would be an interesting experiment is to, is to say that we have like the enhanced league and then we have the normie league. You know what I mean? So like, so in, in this scenario, so let's, let's imagine, so let's go bring up the transgender issue again. So we have, I forget the name, I forget the name of the, the person that was doing this, but he was born female. Then he identified as a woman. So became she, and then she fought in the M- in the um, uh, mixed martial arts in MMA, and then won the female championship. And the w- and then her opponent. I'm gonna I'm just gonna use the the pronoun that they prefer. And then her opponent said that she has never felt so overwhelmed and overpowered in her entire life. And so I think at this point, given the the um, and there was another track star that was born male and then identified as female, and then she won the track the track uh, the championship. Hmm. So what we have here is, is is essentially a practical example of what would happen if we had enhanced versus non enhanced. And I think right. the proper way to respond to that would not be to allow the trans men or the tra- I'm not sure how that works the men who were born men and then became women. I don't think we should allow them to compete in women's sports. They should have a trans sports league. Um, yeah, and what, that would be like you know big PC no no. But I think in the same sense, if we had people who were genetically enhanced, then we could have a, a genetically enhanced sports league, and then the normies league. <laughs> yeah, okay, no, I, I see what you're saying, and I, I think that's I think that's reasonable. It just really strikes me as weird. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's just. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just picturing it right now. No, but but yeah, I can understand why you would separate the two into genetically enhanced and someone who's not genetically enhanced. But wouldn't wouldn't that kind of be, um, wouldn't that sort of be an example of of us forcing 
discrimination on on our culture because it's like you know the, the I don't know it, it seems like to me some the people who are genetically enhanced might have a status then that people who are not genetically enhanced won't like you talked on your your program about the movie Gattaca which is a really good movie yeah. and how and how like Great the non enhanced people right and the non enhanced people uh, were were basically seen as outcasts like they couldn't get uh, job, they couldn't get good jobs. They could just be like janitors and things like that. And I, I don't know how much Star yep. Trek you watch, but Star Trek Deep Space Nine, yeah, Star Trek Deep Space Nine actually kind of went in the opposite direction. It was revealed, spoiler alert to those who haven't seen the show, uh, but it's you know almost two decades old. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, doc, Dr. Julian Bashir is revealed to be uh, genetically enhanced, and genetic enhancement in the Federation is illegal. Uh, which which really strikes me as odd because like the Federation is actually a socialist utopia, so I, I I'm not sure why uh, genetic enhancement would be illegal in the Federation, but it is, and the people who are enhanced are actually seen as outcasts. Um, so so kind of so Star Trek kind of went the opposite direction with genetic enhancement. It just seems like we're forcing some kind of of discrimination onto or you know onto our culture and making it making just a a, a different kind of of class now because you know there's already kind of a, like a big difference between the the rich and the poor and now we're going to have you know pretty much the same kind of thing between the enhanced and the non-enhanced especially as opposed to sports like who's going to watch you know who's going to watch an nfl of regular normal people when they could watch an nfl of genetically enhanced people you know that kind of thing yeah it's true and i i actually none of that that you just said i disagree with um i don't see it as a um as anything that can be avoided, especially right off the bat. Like if, if we have genetic enhancement right off the bat, then there will be the haves and the have-nots, and there will be people who are seen as better and the people who are seen as worse. Um, and I don't see that as, as being, a, um, any, being avoidable whatsoever. However, I think – like I've been saying, I think it's, as throughout the show, I think the same argument can be made for environmental enhancement. Um, because we are a combination of genes and environment, I, and at the end of the day, I don't, I don't see inequality in every area. Like so, I don't see the inequality issue generally as necessarily morally good or morally bad. Um, obviously, I would like to see everybody do awesome, but I just don't think that's right. the world we live in. So I, I don't, I don't think it's, it is necessarily an, uh, it, I don't want to say it's. It, it, so basically, it doesn't really do anything for me to say that it would create inequality because I'm like, we are well, inequality already exists, and it's the result of the environmental manipulation. So unless you want to take the environmental manipulation argument to its what would seem to be its logical outworking to avoid um, inequality, then we would have to do something. We would either have to accept the fact that the genetic genetic enhancement would in fact create inequality. Um, and then work to see what kind of social changes we can put into it. So it's not really an argument against the enhancement. It would be an argument against the reality of inequality. Or we would just say, well, inequality is bad. Therefore, let's all embrace socialism and then become Venezuela. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, instead of having un- inequality between rich and poor, we'll just have everyone poor. <laughs> um, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, So, but it, it seems so – at least it seems like there's a difference to me uh, between – forcing inequality on the culture and uh, inequalities arising uh, naturally because yeah, there's a big inequality between the rich and the poor, but that's because we, but that's because we have a capitalist system. And the reason that we have a capitalist system is because we view capitalism as uh, I don't think any economic system is perfect, 
but I think capitalism comes the closest because capitalism respects individual liberty and individual natural rights. And so, uh, and so the reason that we have an inequality between rich and poor is because of our economic system and our economic system is the, is the best one that anyone has ever come up with as, as far as actually respecting the individual natural rights of people. And so it seems like these kinds of inequalities arise organically, whereas uh, an inequality like uh, genetic enhancement versus non-genetic enhancement would be, would be one that we're basically forcing on society. So I have to ask, I don't know what, how we, this would be forced on anybody because for me, I'm not, I'm not saying anybody needs to enhance like other than like maybe morally, like we might have an obligation, but I'm definitely not saying that like the government should be enhancing anybody. We're not forcing that in that, in that sense. So I, I don't see this, this voluntary enhancing of the children as any different than voluntarily sending my kid to piano lessons. So yeah, I, I well, just the, want you to cl- like go into what you mean by force. Because just by the parents of the parents genetically enhancing their children, that's going to uh, quality. And so it's going to be forced on the non-genetically enhanced, uh, wh- whether they like it or not, basically because, because, uh, because of, of that reason. And again, I, I think that the same thing could be said about, you know, modifying environment. It just it seems like the same the same way to approach it could be just said about the same. You know, basically any any way that I could give my child an advantage would be considered the same type of thing. Yeah, I, I guess my hangup is we're, we're talking about natural advantage versus an artificial one. It, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with with doing it naturally, especially because, for example, if if a if a child doesn't grow up with with two parents, say they only grow up with one parent, or they grow up in foster care, or something like that, they are still able to reach their their full potential. Uh, you know, you you have examples of, for example, BB uh, King, who was raised poor but ended up becoming one of the greatest blues uh, guitarist has ever lived. He would not have had that opportunity if we are genetically enhancing children. Because having the natural affinity for it is no longer seen as special because now we have people who are, are, are doing it unnaturally through genetic enhancement. So you think then modifying the environment is natural and then modifying the genome is unnatural? Right, yeah, because you're doing it artificially in a lab as opposed to uh, working within the child's natural or naturally developing genes and you know, body type and, and cell structure and that kind of thing. Uh, oh, there was just something I had. So do you? So on the natural thing, we know that as like our bodies degrade, that you know we accumulate mutations and things like that in our body. So I I know that if I were to have kids later in life, they would be more likely to have a slightly degraded version of my genome. So when I choose, this is a very kind of strange analogy, but when I choose to have kids. Like say like right now I'm I'm 29. Um, if I had kids actually, can I can I pause you? Can I pause you real quick? Sure. Um, go, go back for a moment when you when you said uh, that if you have children later in life they get a degraded version of your yeah. genes or something. It, yeah, because all throughout your life you accumulate genetic mutations, and in the process of um, so basically the way that sperm is created is it takes mm-hmm. a, a cell that has your current genome and it splits it in, in the process of mitosis and, and makes mm-hmm. a sperm cell, right? So they okay. would essentially, if I, have a, if I have a kid at the age of 60, my body's still going to be making, be making um, sperm cells at the age of 60, 70, 80, and assuming I don't have any other uh, performance <laughs> issues, I would right. be able to <laughs> essentially yeah. conceive a child with a woman who has, you know, in 
you know, let's just say, I don't know, a year. Let's, say I, let's say I'm old and my wife had died a long time ago and then I have some young, some, some young wife. And so she's right. able to conceive a child with me and I'm like 90 years old. Let's say that I choose not, choose not to do that, but I chose to have more kids when I was younger. So what I'm doing, and I'm kind of think I'm losing my train of thought here, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking like in terms of natural, given my understanding of the way that my body makes sperm cells, and given that I, I understand that I can accumulate mutations, would you consider it to be unnatural for me to have more kids when I'm younger because I know that they're going to have a better chance of having more not mutated genes? No, uh, no, because you're you're working naturally. Because okay. um, yeah, because you're you're you know you're working in accordance with the way that your body creates the sperm cells and and the way that your you know wife creates the the ovum. So yeah, so having children earlier on, I don't think that's unnatural because you're still working within the natural methods of reproduction and you're not artificially changing anything. You're just just working within uh, within the you know the confines of of reproduction basically. So then it would your objection to the natural thing would basically just be the fact that I am, I'm removing my sperm and my wife's egg cell and then we're modifying it and then putting it back in. So it's like the fact that it comes out and then I modify and then put it back in. That's the unnatural part that you're yeah, objecting to. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I would say so. Cause, cause you're, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not just that, you know, it, it's, it's the whole fact that you're, you're basically, uh, well, and again, this is going to get back to the, the the natural thing too. Is that you're you're basically enhancing them to a, to uh, to a degree that's unnatural, and so that that's part of it as well. So it's the fact that you're you're basically engineering somebody to go above and beyond where the natural level is for their species, but it's also the fact that it's done artificially as opposed to to naturally. Um, I actually don't know the answer to this. How do you feel about um, like in vitro fertilization? Like if you did it, like you know, just removing one child and then implanting one child. Yeah, I believe that it is uh, wrong to do IVF. Okay. And it's, um, yeah, it's something we'll talk about eventually on this podcast as well. But yeah, I, I have moral issues with the procedure, even if you're just creating one embryo and trying to implant one embryo, because uh, obviously if you're destroying embryos or freezing them, that's that's obviously wrong. Uh, but I think right, it's, I think it's still wrong, wrong, even if you're only going to do one embryo. Right, and that's obviously going to be a different discussion. Um, yeah, so, yeah, and and it, for for that, uh, it's not necessarily. Well, I mean, the artificial the artificiality of it probably has nothing to do with it, but there are there are other issues besides the artificiality of IVF that that I take issue with it. So, so it's not exactly the same arguments I have against genetic engineering that I have against IVF. So, are you okay with then genetic therapy at all? Yeah, I'm okay with genetic therapy because you're restoring lost function to uh, to a part of the body that ought to function. Okay, so then it's not the artificiality that you don't like. It's the enhancements, right? Yeah, because you're you're going yeah because you're going over and above where they're at you know where they're supposed to be naturally. And so, like I said, I, I haven't quite pinned down uh, a, a natural argument to use for it. I, yeah. so I, I can't really articulate that kind of argument, but that that's kind of where kind of where I'm at. Like it, it it's kind of, like it's kind of like a visceral level you know regarding the the unnaturalness uh, of where you're trying to enhance these people to. I think is is part of what makes it wrong. Right, so I mean, so it's a, your your objection then is a combination of the artificiality, but only when it's used for the enhancement. Yeah, I, I think it's probably a combination of the two because, uh, like, like I said, uh, you know, I I do think genetic therapy is is morally licit, and so 
I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to use artificial means with a person, obviously. I mean, I wear eyeglasses because it helps restore uh, the lost vision I have to my eyes. Uh, I have, I didn't, right. you know, I didn't remove my eyes and have them replaced with bionic implants, but uh, I am using eyeglasses because it helps restore my lost vision. And so, so it's not uh, artificiality in and of itself. It's, uh, it's that uh, mixed with the fact that you're, you're, you're enhancing somebody beyond what's natural for the human species. Okay. I, I, so the, the seed of your argument um, with the seed of my response makes me want to have a seed there that says something like that you're – I don't want to say you're begging the question here, but it's a combination of the two things that are in – that I would disagree with individually, and then you just combine the two, and then, it's, then it, it makes it into like a different argument. So I want to separate those two. And then when we do, I think I have an argument against both of those individually. But then when you combine yeah. the two together, I feel like I have to separate them again. Okay. Yeah, and this might just be uh, something that, that I'll need to think more about too uh, because, you know, th- this isn't something that I, I've really had a, a discussion with people about too. So I'm open to t- changing my views on this as well. Um, but, yeah, so yeah. when I say it's the artificiality plus the uh, enhancing past what's normal for the human species. My reasoning for that is because I don't think uh, using artificial means to restore lost function is wrong, but I also don't think that that using artificial means uh, is moral in and of itself. I, I think uh, I think the artificiality has to be seen on a case by case basis, basically. So you, you know, because like I said, I believe it's I believe it's wrong to amputate, for example, uh, a perfectly healthy arm and replace it with uh, with a metal uh, a metal arm implant to make yourself stronger. I think that is wrong right. because you're amputating a perfectly healthy limb, and uh, you know the medical profession has seen that as as immoral as well for for a very long time. So the artificiality isn't like the cornerstone of my argument, but it it plays a it plays a part in it. And so, yeah, maybe I'm just not articulating it well enough either. So I might just have to do on it a bit. I'm going to have to look more into the, uh, the idea of taking a, uh, a natural limb and mm-hmm. taking it off and replacing it with a bionic limb. Because yeah. I, I, I have the same visceral reaction that you do, but I'm, do you, maybe, maybe you have this, maybe you don't. Do you have like a, a, like a moral argument as to why that would be necessarily wrong? Because I know so my, from my libertarian perspective, I'm like, you know what, man? You do you. I'm not going to tell you to not do that. But at the same time, I I don't – maybe it's just a natural rights thing that I just need to study more. But um, the idea that I that I – that there's something inherently immoral for me to make, like let's just say my left arm is not as strong as I want it to be, and I want it to be awesome mm. and super strong. And yeah. I, I – it would have to be a natural rights – or a natural appeal to nature, not not the fallacy, but that kind of thing. Right. That yeah, would necessarily it's... be wrong. Yeah, and actually, that's that's where I'm coming from on this, because the way that I ground my pro-life views is by natural law, and uh, yeah. considering that I do hold to natural law, it also uh, grounds the reason that I believe it's wrong to amputate a healthy limb, because basically, uh, natural law indicates that it is immoral any to treat yourself or to treat any part of your body in such a way that it frustrates the natural end of of that part. So the reason that we would say, mm, for okay. example that, you know, like the Catholic Church teaches that contraception is immoral, and the reason for that is because contraception uh, frustrates the natural end of the reproductive organs, which is reproduction. So if you're going to have sex where you're using contraception, then uh, that's immoral because you're, you're frustrating the natural end of the reproductive organs. You're not allowing the reproductive organs to function properly. You're frustrating that. And so, uh, and so I would take it 
to be wrong to amputate a healthy limb for the same reason, no matter what your reason is. If you're trying to improve yourself by, by implanting a bionic uh, arm to make yourself stronger or whatever it is, it's wrong to amputate your limb because you're frustrating then the natural, uh, the natural functioning, the natural flourishing rather of, of that individual body part. Yeah, I remember studying this a little bit when I was doing Aristotelian metaphysics and talking about teleology and purpose and function yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, at this point, I'm, that's where my, my, where my remembering of what I've studied is kind of in the fog. So I'm going to have to do more, mm. do more look into that, the, the natural. Um, yeah, I, see, I, in, in, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But then I'm like, but then also maybe it doesn't. But I'm like, I have no clue why it doesn't. <laughs> well, yeah, right. I'll have to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically the grounding for, for my pro-life view, too. So um, that, that's something we'll sure. be talking about here on the podcast eventually as well. Because right now, uh, where we're at on the regular podcast with uh, Nathan and Aaron is we're talking about the science. Uh, but we're going to talk about the philosophy here pretty soon as well. That's also mainly my, why I'm opposed to genetic engineering as well. So if you're going to be amputating limbs, I think I can make a much stronger case. But if you're just going to be enhancing at the genetic level, uh, I might need to stew on that and see if and see what uh, other natural law theorists have have written on on the topic because they might have uh, written about this too. Yeah, and I, I bet you there's some kind of like I've see I've watched a few debates on this topic, and I think one of the best thinkers on the pro enhancement side is a dude uh, named Julian Savalescu. I know he's got oh. some terrible views on other things, but yeah, this, um, I'm like, yeah, he, his reasoning <laughs> seems relatively sound. Yeah, but he's he's I come this topic. Yeah, uh, Julian Savalescu is is not a very not a very nice guy. Uh, well, maybe he is in his personal life, but yeah, because like he he believes that he believes that no doctor should be allowed to be a conscientious objector. Like every doctor should be forced to do abortion and to yeah. uh, do assisted suicide and euthanasia. Yeah, so he's definitely come up in my uh, in my research on the pro life field. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, and he's definitely yeah. not somebody that I would say, oh, he's totally right on everything. But the right, one, yeah, definitely the way definitely. that his reasoning. I, I would love to see a debate between like a prominent natural philosopher on this issue with Julian Savalescu just talking mm -hmm. about genetic enhancement. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I, I'd love to see Ed Fieser do that debate. Like if, oh, yeah. if I could if I could pick a champion for the natural law side to debate Julian Savalescu on this, Edward Fieser would be my would be my choice of champion. All right, let's let's pull our our collective clout and let's get, <laughs> let's get going. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's do that. Let's let's try to get a debate set up. All right. That'd be sweet. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we are uh, we're actually coming up to the uh, end of our time together here, Elijah. I, I do appreciate you coming on, and I appreciate your discussion on genetic enhancement too. Yeah, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, uh, where can people find you uh, online? Uh, well, besides um, the, uh, the, the fieldphysician.com. Yeah. So the the primary place that I put all of my stuff, including my totally off topic blog posts, is is at thefetalposition.com. They can also mm -hmm. find me and my my um, they can find me on Facebook. Uh, if you search for my name, I believe if you search with E L I J I A H, it'll come up because my mom gave me the extra I just to frustrate my natural ends. Um, <laughs> so my uh, you can also find me on Twitter uh, Elijah T underscore eighty seven because I did have the I there, but I got rid of that and then. Um, mm -hmm. You can find the podcast at uh, fetal underscore position on Twitter, and there's a likable page. You can go to Facebook and just search the fetal position podcast. You can like the page and get updates. Um, you can also 
go join our private Facebook group where a lot of the, when I first posted this episode about um, genetic enhancement, uh, I got some people in the comments, uh, you know, beating the heck out of me and things that I didn't actually consider. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I, I also recently, I don't even know if I told you this, Clinton, but I started one of those dank meme pages. <laughs> uh, no, you didn't tell me, part- you didn't tell me specifically, but I've seen you post from it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So it's it's a, a part. So my my personality is kind of split into two. I'm like the one on the one side. I do my best to be as reasonable as possible and as as calm and as as uh, even tempered as possible. And then I got the mm. the dank meme part of my personality. I need an outlet for that. And <laughs> right. so I I do my best to to have um, the the philosophical backing for the memes mm. that I post. But you know if someone wants to talk about it, but then it's also it's a meme. So what are you going to do? Um, right. My my openness to memes have changed a little bit, but that's actually dank pro-life memes. You can go to thefetalposition.com slash memes in order to be able to see that. And that's uh, that's just, you know, my side project. Kind of a yeah. marketing thing to get the people to like the podcast because you'll see if you, if you scroll through the memes, I have a couple of you know, hints at the fetal position, um, the podcast there. So that's where you can find me right. in all those different places. Okay. Um, so I'd like to thank you, the audience, uh, for listening in. Uh, Alecha, I'd like to thank you again for, for um, coming on and allowing me to interview you about these, uh, about these things. Yeah, it was great. Fantastic. Yeah, if you, uh, enjoyed, what we, if you enjoyed our discussion uh, or if you enjoyed the podcast in general, I would encourage you to, to share it around. Uh, also, rate and review it. Uh, you can rate and review us on Facebook at, the, at our Pro-Life Thinking Facebook page. We are going to get up on iTunes eventually. I, I've kind of hit a snag. Uh, in in posting my uh, my podcast up there, but I do plan on getting it up there eventually, and we could of course appreciate rating and reviewing there as well. Uh, additionally, this is a weekly podcast that we do, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life field. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. Now, I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. Now, next week, uh, Nathan and Aaron will be joining me again, and we're going to be talking about the objections uh, to the scientific evidence for the pro-life position. So you're not going to want to miss that. That'll be up uh, actually this, this coming Sunday. So uh, yeah, it'll be up here on the uh, on the Blog Talk Radio page, and we'll also be posting it up on uh, our Pro Life Thinking Facebook page as soon as it goes live. So once again, I want to thank you, and we will see you next time.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.